So we're going to be continuing our sermon series on Jubilee and some of the things that deal within Jubilee. Um, and I'm just going to preface it by saying that uh, I had this kind of cool sermon idea, right, of the consequences of not following Jubilee. And I was like all excited, like oh, I get to talk about like how Babylon and the division and possibly where our multiple interpretations and writings of Genesis came and stuff like that. As I started studying it and as I lost sleep and as we moved into a house, uh, I was reading some things and I was just like, hmm, some people disagree with me and where my current stance is. And as I kept reading more into it, I was like, I think they're right and I'm wrong. So that sermon all got shut down real quick. Um, but as I was going through it, um, I think there's some still consequences that we can walk away from and kind of aligning ourselves to have a better consequence. Um, but before I start on this, I want to at least give credit where credit is due. A lot of this I got um, was called the Theology of Work Project. Um, and they have some things like academic journals, uh, translations done by rabbis to uh, scholars and things like that. So a lot of the early part of the sermon I have taken from them and some of their ideas just because they weren't my ideas and I thought they had it right. I'm also going to say that uh, this sermon is probably going to sound a little more scripted because as you know, we, uh, we moved into a house yesterday, which I am very thankful for everyone that helped us move. Uh, and as I was writing the sermon last night, um, my wife and I were talking, Chelsea, I was like, you know, Micah is like a prime, like if you could like put Jubilee in a person and like what it means to like live and outwardly, both economically, theologically, and socially deal with people, that's Micah. So uh, if you ever have any questions of what it means to live and to walk and to not base things off of if you do good, good things happen, or if you do bad, bad things happen, but more on lines of if you follow God and work with God, you get to know God and be more like God, Micah exemplifies that. So I don't mean to call you out, but I was just like extremely thankful for you and uh, just what you've done in our lives personally. But to this sermon, uh, like I said, much of this is borrowed from the Theology or theology of Work Project. And uh, one of the things we know is that in Leviticus 25, um, it ordains a Sabbath year, one in every seven years, and a year of Jubilee, one in every 50 years. Now, the time when this was celebrated or was not celebrated is still debated, but it was done to sanctify Israel's internal economy. Uh, for instance, uh, during the Sabbath year, a uh, field was to lie fallow or plowed, um, which seems to sound like an agricultural practice, something good to do, just something practical. Um, but the year of Jubilee, as Chris has talked about, as we've gone through it, was even more radical. Um, for instance, all leased or mortgaged lands were to be returned to their original owners, and all slaves or bonded laborers would be free. Um, and when I think about that, uh, initially in my mind, and I think a lot of times we read scripture, you can't help bring in your own bias, and you can't help pulling things to like, practice the thing of you. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, man, I can imagine if like, my college debt was just like gone. If like, the, the bank was just like, you know what? You're a good dude, and you're trying to do the right thing. We're just going to bless you, and that's forgiven. That'd just be, like, amazing, but it's not. So uh, it'd be cool if that was the, the situation. But, you know, you, much like Israel and much like even our culture today, the logical conclusion would be that, like, well, that poses difficulty for banking and land transactions, right? To just be like, oh, well, after 50 years, you know, like, I get the property back, but you guys don't owe anything. And uh, if you had any debt and stuff like that, it's forgiven. You know, like, that poses a problem, right? But... There were special provisions that were designed, and you can find those in Leviticus 25, 15 through 16. And I don't want to spend too much time in that because I can get really heady, and I know some of the people here would just be like Creed and Tom and Chris and all of them. They'd just be like, that's awesome. Let's keep talking about this. But for everybody else, they're just like, you know, I get bored when I read numbers. It's just a bunch of names. Just go on to the part after that, you know? Uh, so, like, I'm not going to spend as much time focusing on that, but I would say that the underlying intent, arguably, uh, even the main point in which I and the writer whose journal I'm basing this off of 
um, is to ensure that everyone has access to the means of production, whether the family farm or any of the fruits of the labor. And as I was thinking about that, I was imagine what that would be like today if, like, culturally we treated people in the sense of just it wasn't a matter of who gained or didn't gain, but that everybody was fed, everybody was taken care of, everybody was clothed. Uh, and I think of, like, the New Testament even and some of the things that Christ thinks. There's a lot of times we hear these things in the Old Testament and we're just like, well, that applied then and applied to the Israelites, in which sometimes it is. You know, a good hermeneutic and a good exegetical study would say that, you know, it's okay for us to eat bacon today. You know, I don't think too many evangelical churches are going to be like, can't eat bacon. But that was a Jewish law that was practiced then. Um, but in, and in this idea and in this situation, I think of instances where Christ is, you know, if someone asks you for their, you know, essentially if they ask for your shirt, give them both. Um, the woman at the well, uh, the way that he approaches people, he's still living out these principles, but it's not this law. It's not this, um, if you do this, then there, these good things will happen, and if you don't do this, these consequences will happen, but this perspective that changes. And so as we go through this, um, just keep in the back of your mind of, it's not a matter of regulations in the sense of do, just do these things, but it's an idea and a, a glimpse of where we get to see God. And oftentimes, and I've talked to my buddy Lambert many times about this, is that, um, I guess he's your buddy too, but uh, (laughs) uh, a lot of times in the Old Testament we get really scared to read it, and we see like this angry, mean, vengeful God, Um, but when we really take time studying it, at least for myself, I see this like almost overly compassionate, almost like pleading God, of this God just, you know, kind of like his children are like kind of going in this direction, and he's just like, please, just stay with me, walk with me, be with me, Uh, and him always saying that I'll forgive you, my grace is enough. This, this idea that is in the New Testament that we seem to overlook in the Old Testament. We seem to get caught up on wars and battles and things like that. And again, I'm not going to focus on going on a, a you know, rabbit hole and going down there. But a lot of that is really question and ask when you're reading those passages, is God the one that ordains this? Or is it the people that are talking about it that are attributing God to doing these things? So really ask yourself as you're going through this stuff that that doesn't necessarily mean that God was saying, go and kill everybody. Or was it more along the lines of someone who was saying, I'm going to go kill everybody, and I'm going to do it in the name of God? You know, just keep, keep, keep your options open. And I think there's instances where God is over things and has provision over it, but uh, I don't think he is just this evil, spiteful thing and then changes. If we really believe that God is the same God that has always been and always will be, he has to be the same in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament, and as he is today. So regarding the consequences uh, following the year of Jubilee, at least to the degree that I want to talk about today. Um, we really don't know whether Israel actually observed it or not, um, or for that matter, if they even followed the anti-slavery provisions associated with it. And what I mean by that is initially when I was coming into the sermon, I was along the idea that the Israelites did not follow this. After researching and reading some stuff from different rabbis and some different uh, Old Testament scholars, I was like, well, I think I'm wrong. And uh, so I didn't want to preach kind of like this black and white sort of uh, sermon, and as, as important as it is, even in our theology, to hold on to our virtues, our dogma, um, that Christ, you know, is fully man and fully God, that Christ is part of the Trinity, and that it's, you know, three distinct persons, one divine essence, as important as those things are to be essentially black and white, um, as I've grown, and maybe some of you guys have grown as well, and it could be different, but for myself personally, like, I seem to see this beauty in the gray area that God is not just this or that. And, you know, one of the instances I tell people when we do, like, Life on Tap is that you have one instance if your brother is caught in sin, you're called to flee from him, you know, to not tempt yourself. In the other instance, you're called if your brother is caught in sin to help him and to guide him and to be there for him and carry each other's burdens. So it sounds contradictory, right? But there's this whole thing, I mean, we just sang about, this whole thing called the Holy Spirit, right, that speaks to us, that works with us. 
where you can pray and God can direct you in either or. It doesn't need to be a, you know, this or that, but a, a more of a both and, as the Orthodox would call it. And as you know, I love Orthodox theology. And uh, I think there, there's a lot of beauty in that, this both and theology. I see Anthony smiling because I've heard that you guys have been talking about that in, like, your small group and stuff. And it does, it, it, like, it radically changed my mind. It's that instead of seeing things as this or that, but see it as both and, to see the beauty in both sides. And I remember being in college with Tom, and we'd be in class, and Tom would get all irritated, but he wouldn't say anything but there'd always be this A and B side fighting against each other. You know, whether it was Calvinism or Arminianism or whatever, even our eldership groups, rather. You know, Tom's just like, but where, where's that C ground? What's that, what's that one in the middle that's the both of these? And uh, I've always appreciated that and, and enjoyed that uh, with you. But as I was thinking about roles that were uh, kind of assigned to these Israelites, right, um, and whether or not they observed them or not, it made me think of even today in our society, because a lot of times we try to peg this stuff on being, well, these are a bunch of old people, uh, ancient people, that we don't live like them today. But I thought about even today when we had our black rights, right? So slavery is outlaw, but then what do we do? Well, you can't drink at this drinking fountain, and you can drink at this drinking fountain. A law does not necessarily regulate a culture and how they treat each other. And so the importance of that, that still goes on today. So we may look at it as rules then, but we're still, I don't want to say corrupted because I'm not a fully depraved person. I don't believe that there's no good in us. But I think we're pretty crappy, too, at the same time. Or we can be pretty crappy. But I think about that, how, like, that's something that, you know, that's two generations away. That somebody in this building couldn't be in this building with us. Or if they were, they had to sit over there. And I think even further to, like, women's rights and things like that. You know, it's just like, we do these same things. And arguably, are we doing it to even the homosexual communities that are around us today? Not in the sense that we should be... Um, whether the church should be accepting or not, if, if it's sinful or not, but in the sense of are we loving them? Are we making fun of them? Are we criticizing them? Are we shunning them? That's not what Christ does. And I don't think that's what we're called to do. So we do these things today. So whether or not the Israelites followed the year of Jubilee or not, um, are we even following these principles of holding debt over our friend and our brethren um, and holding uh, something as simple as finances or even life decisions, times of currency? Are we holding our time? over other people. And so it's safe to say, uh, at least in my mind, that if the year of Jubilee was not followed, it's unlikely that they were simply unfeasible and more likely um, that the wealthy were unwilling to accept social and economic implications that would have been costly and disruptive to them. And so you don't have to go into much detail about this, but even this arguably still happens today. People with money don't want to lose said money. Or people without money oftentimes demand that that be given to them. It's kind of the same sin, right, on both sides of just this demand that money is what rules. Money is what dictates how you do what you do, as opposed to saying that, like, it's a tool. It's something like, like a screwdriver, you know, but some people have five screwdrivers in their garage, you know, and other people are saying, like, I got this, like, little pen and, you know, some scissors, and I'm making it work. Um, but it can, it can both people can have a tool that they're using. It's how you go about using because how do we know the person that has the five in his garage is not handing out four every week? You know, and how do we know the person that all they have is that pen and scissors and someone says they need help, they're like, hey, all I got is pen and scissors, but I'm going to go out there and do the best I can. But I mean, I guess if we know anything, duct tape fixes everything. So at least that's what I learned yesterday. Uh, But uh, (laughs) so you don't have to go into too much detail into that. But again, these principles that we would look at and kind of see as regulated rules are just as much practical today. 
So the basis of the sermon, and as much as I'd like it to be, it's like I said earlier, uh, was to be on the consequences of not following Jubilee. Uh, and then I could have talked about my previous knowledge of Israel to my degree of knowledge then of not following Ju- Jubilee and being conquered by Babylon, and recent readings and studies have challenged that. And so instead, we're going to discuss some of the main issues Jubilee was supposed to protect and how they are spoken of or at least alluded to in the New Testament, as well as the consequences of it and not seeing it as you and not seeing consequences as in you do good and good happens, and you do bad and bad happens. Essentially, not trying to promote a prosperity gospel, if you will. Um, I don't plan on getting a private jet or anything like that, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, but one of the main reasons um, for following this, um, the year of Jubilee and things like that, or even some of these principles, even Sabbath law and stuff like that, um, was the pr- for the protection of the destitute. And as Chris has talked about, um, after Israel conquered Canaan, uh, the land was assigned to Israel's clans, and the families were described in Numbers and Joshua. So some, kind of, some of those dry reads of, like, this is bestowed to this, and keeps going, and keeps going. And then somebody's going to be like, hey, there's this thing called Jabez, and then they're going to write a book about it, and people are like, eh, I don't know about that. But I don't know if you guys have read that, but just be weary about that. Don't, don't just accept everything it says. <laughs> but um, the conclusion that I at least came from is that by following Jubilee, um, it would prevent any family from becoming permanently landless, uh, and it would not prevent somebody from owning land. Uh, and part of this, too, was that like, this land was never to be sold because it belonged to the Lord. And I was thinking about that even in my house yesterday. Is that like, So for me in my life, and I've given my testimony before, uh, I really, when I was at home, even as a child and stuff, like that didn't really feel like home to me. I didn't have necessarily the best relationship with my family, and uh, it's nothing opposed to them or that it's not good now, but I just, I just didn't feel home. Um, I moved out at an early age. Uh, I never had really lived in a place more than a year at a time. So the past two years is the longest my wife and I have ever lived in a place, and that was for two years in an apartment. And so when we got this home, um, it's just so much of it was a blessing from having Anthony working with us to the people that we were working with. And as I was walking through it, I was just, you know, and we were cleaning stuff. And at first I was all excited to have wood floors. Like, these are awesome. And then as I got to having, like, mop them, I was like, I hate wood floors. These are the worst things <laughs> in the world. But it gave me an opportunity to be praying about it. And when I was praying about it, I was just, you know, God, I was just like, this belongs to you. The way this has worked out, the way that you guys as the church has allowed me and my wife to live there. This is the first time ever in my life that I've worked one job and have been able to take care of my bills and my family. Uh, the rest of the time, I've always worked two jobs, if not more, and still I'm just like, okay, how can I get this bill to get pushed back so therefore I can, you know, make sure this payment works and stuff like that. So, but we've been blessed by you guys. And as those blessings have been given to me, I want to make sure it's given back, uh, not just to this church family, but for the community around us. And but as I was praying, going through the halls, I was like, God, I was just like, I want this home to be your home. I want this home to be family uh, here. And uh, that night, a guy uh, I've been spending time with just showed up and decided to start helping. And he hasn't come to the church or anything by that means. But, I mean, uh, Dave Fisher was there, uh, Emily Fisher's husband. And uh, we were just talking to him. And this, like, just conversation about devoting himself to the Lord, devoting himself to good and positive relationships just happened. And I was just like, dude, you can't go get me all emotional. I mean, my wife makes fun of me enough that I I don't ever show emotion. She's just like, you're just too logical. She's like, just swear one time. Get mad one time. Uh, And, like, I just started crying. Like, because, like, this is what I asked God for as I'm mopping these floors that I'm blessed to have and I'm still complaining about, right? And God brings somebody in um, so I could bless them with that. And so this is what the principle God was trying to teach the people then, is that as much as this land belonged to you, 
It belongs to me. And if it belongs to me, what do I do? Especially in the New Testament, what do we see? We use that whole washing of the feet, and Chris talked about that last week, of, you know, that was for the lowest, lowest, that was the servant, servant, servant's job. And Christ does that. And so if Christ owns all things, and this is how he treats and loves his creation, how are we to be treating people with the things that we have, the material tools that we have? Are we doing the same? If we're calling ourselves followers of Christ, Christians, are, are we doing this? And so following this, um, it provided a means for the destitute to raise money um, by leasing their land without depriving the family's future generations of means of productions. Um, and again, there's some, a lot of fine details in this, and they're hard to understand, and I don't want to focus on them too much, but the point is the Israelites were never to become slaves to the other Israelites. They were never just supposed to be, you're never supposed to put your brother in debt for a period of time that would pretty much enslave them, whether it was economically, socially, or even, you know, theologically, you know, or mentally, for that matter, you know, abusing scripture to get what you want. We have this in the New Testament. We have this with, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and things like that, you know, to their knowledge, and honestly, to even my knowledge, they probably knew scripture better than I do in the sense of being able to recite it and to be able to talk on it. Um, and one of the things that Christ does with this is, you know, uh, he, the woman at the well, I think of that, you know, offhand and things like that and how he meets her, how he approaches her. And something I've been talking to Chris with um, for a couple weeks is that God's been kind of changing this perspective in my mind and got to preach on it at Blade's wedding as well is that uh, oftentimes we demand that people when they come into the faith or even when they're coming to the church or coming into our own lives that they behave a certain way but without requiring, or not even require, but without allowing them to believe that in, to, in the first place. And what I mean by that is typically what you believe is how you live. You know, God, James talks about this. Um, you know, the whole idea of um, even the demons know who God is and shudders, but what do you do? This whole idea of what you believe will kind of to some degree determine what you do. Um, but oftentimes we're demanding that what people are doing comes before what they believe. And so this idea of that putting um, belief um, before behavior is kind of something that's kind of been going through my mind. And I think about people that come to the church that, you know, they, their behavior may be inappropriate. It may not be tolerable. But in the same sense, where is that belief coming from? You know, are we behaving in a way that could train them to have the belief that we truly hold on to, that we believe in, that has saved us, that has blessed us, that has, and not in the sense of the material game, but the sense of peace and rest and love towards each other. Are we behaving in a way that, is welcoming to them or are we demanding that they behave that way even though they don't believe what we believe. And I think this is one of the things that's trying to happen there is that to the degree are we enslaving somebody to the point that uh, maybe it's even with a belief. You know, are we enslaving them that like you're not good enough until you believe this, that I can't love you until you believe this. Or what does God call us to do? You know, we're supposed to love them as he loves us. You know, this unconditional love that only comes from him. Um, that's crazy, right? Uh, you know, what, what is this nonsense to uh, treat other people as equal and to treat them as human uh, and not simply a means to a financial end or debt over each other? You know, and not to use this example again, Micah, but Micah, I, you know, so I used to live in Ashland for a while, and uh, I'd come up here four, five days a week, uh, and that's like an hour and 40-minute drive, and it's Taurus, right? And I was about to be like fr uh, Fred Flintstone, like the bottom was like rusting out, so I was just waiting for the day. I'm just driving. My feet are just kicking out. And Micah comes along and finds someone that's trying to get rid of a car and stuff like that and ends up loaning my wife and I the money to be able to buy this car and then pay him back. And as we're going through this and stuff like that, Micah's like, you know what? And we've been paying on it for a while, and Micah looks at me, and he's just like, you're about to have a baby. Just enjoy your blessing and go. 
That, to me, is the principle of Jubilee being lived out. Um, and without him saying, like, oh, I want to follow this rule, or simply because the rules are, Scripture tells me to just do this, I'm going to do this. And that's him not just using his financial provision, but also using his time and his heart as a person. You know, that's an example of what it means is that oftentimes we either will give financially and say that because this is the tool I have, this is what I give. And so therefore I don't give from any other area. In the other instances, people don't have finances, so they say that I give my time. And so since I only give my time, that's all I give. But there's this balance that needs to happen. There's this balance of that, yeah, it's good to give that financial, but it's to be to the church or even to each other. That's good to give financially, but if that's all you're giving, then that's really not the genuine perspective that Christ is trying to give us. This idea that your time is just as valuable. Why you give is just as valuable. And inversely, like if all you're giving is your time, but in that time your finances isn't a part of it, then you're holding on to that money just as much as somebody else is. You know, and that should be something that's given as well. And so, again, you know, whether it be with Nicodemus um, or the woman at the well or the blind one, which is one of my favorite passages in Scripture, Christ approaches these people with this idea of, I'm not going to demand that you believe but have this behavior. Uh, or I'm going to demand that you have this belief before this behavior. He doesn't go to them and say that, well, just so you know, I'm God. You should listen to everything I have to say. Uh, I can tell you everything that's wrong with you. No, he loves them unconditionally and enables them to have the belief. And once that happens, he goes, go and sin no more to the woman at the well. For you were blind, you know, but you saw without seeing. Uh, you know, these, these ideas that are there. Um, so, you know, we may go, okay, so you're using New Testament passages, you're using Old Testament passages, but what does it mean for us today, uh, at least in our evangelical circles? Because we typically don't uh, celebrate Jubilee or even Sabbath as well as what some of the Jews do today. Um, for one reason, um, is I think uh, God no longer, if ever, administers redemption through a single political state. And I'm not trying to get political here, but I'm not saying, uh, nor is City Church saying, um, that uh, Israel isn't protected in a special manner because it's God's people. And what I mean by that is that we're all God's people. Uh, so Israel's a part of that, um, but I personally believe, and again, I'm not going to say for the place of city church or anything like that, but I personally believe that Israel is not just a special place that God's going to just take care of. I think uh, he loves the Muslim just as much as he loves the Buddhist, just as much as he loves us, just as he loves the person that doesn't adhere to any God. You know, there's this idea, to me at least, um, I mean, I think it was John Wesley that says Christ was rejected, so all was elected. This idea that Christ chose to pour himself out, give himself, allow himself to be rejected so that we all could come to know him. Whether that be through faith now, whether it be through, if you're Catholic, to a a time of um, waiting uh, and hashing that out, um, or whether it's everybody's just saved. I don't know. I don't don't personally believe that, but... um, it's just this idea that I think God's love does transcend all social, economic, theological barriers. Uh, and I think no one's exempt from it, and no one gets special love either. But it also calls, um, at least what my initial point was, is that theologically in the year of Jubilee, that God is not only the God of Israel, but also the God of time and nature. This idea that like he owns all this land. He owns, it all belongs to him, and he's allowed us to be the stewards of it. Um, it also calls the rich to trust that treating creditors compassionately will still yield an adequate return. Um, and I want to say that again, is that, uh, and I hate using the word rich, so I'm going to use the word those that um, have authority to trust that treating those without as much authority compassionately will yield an adequate, adequate return. 
So this idea that just because you're loving towards somebody, you're merciful to somebody, you're gracious towards somebody, doesn't mean that they're not going to respond back in a loving manner. Yeah, you're going to have people that take from you, but this is this whole idea of prayer, right? This whole idea of that we have this Holy Spirit that speaks with us and works with us. We have scripture that we can go to that can validate that. Um, but maybe God's calling you to work in someone's life that is going to take of you. Maybe God's calling you to be like him and Peter, you know, or not Peter, Judas was the treasurer. So imagine, and I've said before, imagine if you had all your money and you're giving it to someone that you know is going to betray you. That you know that at the end of the day wants more money and sells you, essentially. Are we willing, is our money something that truly belongs to God to the point that, like God, we can trust someone that's even going to turn on us? Are we willing to give that? I'm not saying that you should. I'm just saying that are you willing to surrender that over to God? And so, um, from a social angle, uh, the year of Jubilee would have provided a social economic solution to keep the family whole, even in the face of an economic calamity. Um, it also, um, debt was a reality, and its effects, including, uh, you know, what it does for us today, was frightening um, to a lot of the social ills then. Imagine, and after a certain amount of time, any negative social consequence that would have, uh, would have an end duration. Uh, and even not for us, but for our children. So imagine that, like, even if today, like, if we could know that at the end of the day, if something was to happen to us, that wouldn't fall onto our children. You know, that would be a pretty awesome thing to happen. Um, but God desires just distrib- distribution of the earth's resources, resources, and this is more of an economic point. And what I mean by that um, is that, you know, are we willing to feed those that don't have food? Are we willing to, when we see someone on the street that's hungering, to not just be like, hey, here's some McDonald's, I'm going to throw it at you. Not that that's bad necessarily, but would we make them a meal as we would make ourselves a meal? Do we see them as a human? Do we see them as somebody that is worth spending a meal with? Um, the second point is that the family units uh, must have an opportunity and the resources provided for themselves. And so what if we treated people like that today? That we, no matter what we did, we allow someone that was putting in the work to be able to make the, not necessarily the income, but even the time and uh, the opportunity to be with his family and to take care of his family. So these practices weren't just then. Um, so you, you may be asking, well, what are the consequences? If there are any. Uh, And I don't mean to be simple uh, or to dumb this down, but instead of looking at the rules to make God happy or mad, look at them instead in the opportunity to grow closer, to glorify, and to personally become more like him. What I mean by that is that oftentimes we look at if I do this, this happens. If I do that, this happens. But that's not how God works. It's the condition of the heart. You know, know, it's examples of consequences even in sin. Uh, You say that, you know... uh, Doing this uh, with a woman is adultery, but I say if you look at her the wrong way, you've lusted and committed adultery. This higher challenge is given. Um, but in the same sense of goodness is that be merciful, be gracious. You have this in Micah 6, 8. This is an Old Testament principle that still is applied today, that Christ still speaks on today. Is that how we're willing to live and love each other? Uh, and stop looking at things of that by doing this, good things are going to happen to me, but look at it more in the sense of by doing this, you're getting a, a, a perspective of the divine, you're in a perspective of seeing that transcendent God here and now, not just in what he is, but how he acts in your life, how he acts in your culture, how he acts in your family. And in doing so, you're getting closer to him. You're glorifying him, which is often what we all should be doing. In the same sense, you're personally going to be changed to be more like him. So the consequence is that you don't get to have more time with God. You don't get to personally know him as deeply. And you don't necessarily get to have the opportunity to, by pouring yourself out, maybe that was the opportunity that was going to bring about peace to you. Maybe that act of service 
is what brings about that joy you've been longing for. But instead, we become so uh, self-conscious and so um, self-indulgent. Uh, and we so focus on, like, I just want to feel peaceful. I want to have rest and stuff like that. But we don't ever consider that maybe that rest comes by giving, by serving, by giving of ourselves. I mean, what saint do you know uh, just had this wonderful life? And we look at their stories and we read these stories and we're just like, that's a horrible life, but they were blessed. Mary was blessed. And she got to watch her son be crucified, but she was blessed. So maybe instead of looking for joy and consequences in the sense of doing good or, and good things happen and bad and bad things happen, but more on the lines of what glorifies God is you'll find peace in even the craziest of storms. And there'll be times where it's really nice and it's like a little beach and it's like Peter having fish with them and stuff like that. You know, there'll, there'll be those seasons. Um, but it's not always like that. And we shouldn't just promote that, or that should be our optimal goal is just to get, but we should be more focused on giving. So um, I guess really what I want to end this on was that uh, the real consequence of whether or not the Israelites fall in the year uh, of Jubilee or they didn't do it uh, is that to some degree uh, it wasn't about what they were missing out on. Um, in the sense of that they weren't missing out on not having land. They weren't missing out on uh, not having an economic or sociological provisions. What they were missing out on uh, was an opportunity to be with the divine and to grow with him and to get to understand the God, what God was trying to show them personally about who he was. In the same sense, um, I want to make sure that we're not doing that today as, as well, that we're not just simply having a rule-based culture. We're not following these ideas because we're worried about the consequences that they may bring or about the blessings in terms of material gain that we may have but more along the lines of that we have an opportunity to grow with God, that by following him we can see him and we can be more like him and we can give that to other people. Um, so that's my hope and that's my prayer for us today. Uh, I apologize for going over a little bit. Uh, I wasn't actually, I didn't even plan for me to be able to speak this much on it, um, but it is something I hold dear to myself. It is the reason why, um, you can go to Coke, it's the reason why we do like life on tap and stuff like that. It's meeting people where they are as opposed to demanding them be where they ought to be. Um, so I ask that you would just do that in your lives. Um, and Chris is going to do communion. Let me move this for you.